Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Social Innovation Podcast. My name is Zalda Stor, and I'm your host. I'm here with Mateus Boissonneau, who is the CEO and founder of Handprint, which is a regenerative software company. And I'm going to let Mateus explain a little bit more about what that means. Hi, Zal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, pleasure to be here. So Handprint is developing the infrastructure layer of the internet for the regenerative economy. What it means is that we're developing a technology that enables any company to integrate within their platform, within their customer experiences, regenerative events like the absorption of carbon or cleaning up one kg of plastic from the ocean or planting one coral on a, on a coral reef. So it started, or uh, yeah, <laughs> I was about to tell about our founding story, but it was not even in the question. So I mean, feel free. Uh, you can I'll feel free to to, uh, to to talk about that if that's what you'd like to. Handprint started as a as a spin-off of a research project. Uh, so my two co-founders were academics uh, researching on how efficient carbon credit markets were. They wrote a paper a few years ago that was commissioned by the United Nations uh, and discussed at Davos about how much money actually reaches the ground when it comes to the funding of regenerative projects. And they discovered that up to 80% of those funds did not reach the ground. 80% systematically were absorbed by intermediaries. It doesn't mean that it was a system that was illegal or there were corruption in that, as a lot of people might think. It just means that this system is very cost inefficient. Uh, so we started from that to develop a technology to make that market transparent and cost effective using technologies that automate most of the manual procedures that exist in that industry because it's an old legacy uh, industry with uh, a lot of stakeholders that are not digitized, right? Typically, uh, NGOs that are doing the work on the ground are not digitized. So we are developing a technology that enables two levels of transparency. Number one, financial transparency. You can see how the money is being used on the ground, right? Instead of like, making a contribution to a black box. You don't have access to that data. And number two is impact transparency. You can have access to verification reports, but most importantly, you know how much exactly every contribution benefits the planet in terms of SDG aligned metrics like carbon absorption, support to biodiversity, social impact, etc. It sounds like you're providing a lot to these companies because, as you said, 80% being absorbed by other things other than the organizations on the ground, there's going to be a serious impact in terms of what you can do, right? So how is it that Handprint is different in terms of the, their operating model to be able to get so much more impact out to the projects? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, And I would enlarge the question to the supply side as well because that's also very interesting. So on the demand side, the problem that we solve for companies is the transparency problem and the cost efficiency problem. How do we do that? We use new technologies that were not available just a few years ago, right? Because the technology was not ready. Technologies like remote sensing, verifying that the project 
has actually been executed and that the forest, for example, actually absorbs carbon over time using satellite images instead of like a certification body, a verification agency that will like send consultants on the ground to do sampling and all of that, which is also a very uh, accurate methodology, but it's way less cost efficient, right? So on the demand side, that's about this. And on the supply side, the problem that we're solving for NGOs is that there are two problems fundamentally that we're solving for them. Number one, historically, they have been excluded from institutional money, especially small NGOs, NGOs that have projects that, you know, that are too small to generate carbon credits, for example, because they need to put money up front to have a certification and all of that. So we give them access to institutional funding by enabling them to have a higher standard of reporting. So we provide them with digital tools, with software that enables them in real time to report on their financials, to report on their impact, to digitize their project, digitize their project management. So for them, it's a, it's a gain of time and a gain of, um, and, and they can better report what they are doing on the ground. So that's what we do on both sides uh, of the market. I know that Handprint has very specific projects that they've chosen. So can you talk to us a little bit about the projects that you've chosen and, and the reasons why you chose those ones in particular? We have a role of curator for our corporate clients that we automate. Basically, when we onboard a project, whether it's a reforestation project, a coral reef restoration project, a habitat conservation project. What we do is, so we have an impact and data team in-house that is crunching a lot of data about the project specifically, public data as well, and that is assessing. So they, they are giving a score to that project on how relevant that project is to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And if that score is high enough, we onboard that project. If it's not high enough, we formulate a series of recommendations to that NGO on how they could score better. Because I know that you specifically chose a mangrove project rather than a tree planting project, particularly both in Indonesia, where you know we know there are a lot of forest fires and there are a lot of burning and for agricultural use, what made you go towards the mangrove instead of a traditional sort of tree project? I would say two reasons. So number one, it's um, that there will be the uh, emotional angle because my two co-founders are PhDs and they, they, they wrote a research paper a few years ago about mangroves uh, that was published on Harvard Business Review. So for them, it's a uh, it's the emotional angle of, uh, of the mangroves. But beyond that, it's because mangroves are a miracle technology. It's absorbing more carbon than terrestri terrestrial forest at a faster pace, close to 100 times faster. It's just like, imagine if humanity was given the perfect tool to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. Today, there is no better tool. There is no machine that can absorb carbon like a mangrove, an ecosystem of uh, coastal trees can do. We started with mangrove on the platform, quickly expanded 
to different type of reforestation and then to different impact categories. But it's true that we started with mangroves because it's basically the most efficient natural tool that humanity has access to to fight climate change. So I know that you recently moved your office to Bali in Indonesia, uh, which we're actually recording out of right now. It's a beautiful villa here. Was the part of the reason for the move to be closer to the projects here on the ground? No, absolutely. Yeah. So we have a lot of projects in Indonesia. So a few mangrove restoration projects in Java, in Sumatra as well, and a coral reef restoration project in, um, in Bali, an amazing project, by the way, from Living Seas, and two impact partners that are doing plastic cleanup river, from rivers, river plastic cleanup in Bali and Java. So definitely that was part of the decision of opening an office in, uh, in Bali. We still have part of the team in Singapore. And the other part of that decision, I would say, is to offer our team members a very nice environment to work from, right? And they can relocate to Bali to work full-time here or come anytime they want and be able to work in a very, from an, a very nice environment. It is definitely nicer than most offices that I've seen. So. You know, congratulations on achieving that. It's this beautiful villa here in Bali. I wanted to actually talk to you about the journey that you've gone on with Handprint because I know from our previous discussions, you started with a thesis and then slowly um, maybe that thesis changed. And I think that that's a really natural progression for any business to go through. And so it'd be great if you could just talk us through a little bit about the pivot that you've done and the way that you came about understanding whether to pivot or not. Absolutely. So in our case, I would say we started on a different ground or from a different angle than most startups. We didn't start from the angle of let's solve a problem for a certain persona in a niche market, which is actually the sound way of doing it. Right, it's the it's the no, it's the way that works. On our case, because it started as a, as a spin-off of a research project, we started by developing a technology that makes financial transparency possible for those transactions. So worse and and cost efficient. So we started by by solving a very abstract problem, right? With like with no roots, with no users. So once we had that beautiful technology that sits somewhere on the cloud that no one is using, we then ask ourselves the question, okay, what is our go-to-market, right? We completely did the opposite of what should be done uh, in a normal startup setup. And we decided to start with e-commerce. So this was our first go-to-market for multiple reasons, because it was the beginning of COVID. So there were a lot of uncertainty about so many different industries, except e-commerce that was booming at the time. And our assumption was that small to medium brands, brands that generate less than 15 million per year, those brands, they typically don't have a CSR team. They don't have a tech team and they want a way a self-service way to become regenerative for the planet. 
That was our, our assumption. We started with e-commerce as a main go-to-market. And very quickly, we were proven wrong by the market because the incoming calls, the, the guys that wanted to talk to us, <laughs> were not brands at all, right? We were chasing brands on a daily basis and we were receiving incoming calls from much bigger companies that are not that are absolutely not in that industry. So we were completely uh, wrong about our assumption and we pivoted quite quickly. So we developed a SaaS platform for those big, uh, big companies uh, together with an API to enable them to use our technology. So it was a market-led pivot. So you, you, you saw that the customers were coming from somewhere else. What is it specifically that these businesses were asking of you that was not maybe the e-commerce guys were not asking? That's a very good question. So on the e-commerce side, our sales speech is really focusing on grow your business using regeneration because your consumers are voting with their wallet and they want you to be regenerated, right? And first movers are leaving everyone behind. And there are lots of studies that show that, a lot of uh, success stories around uh, regeneration with companies like Patagonia or even Ecosia for platforms, etc. For the big guys, right? Companies like uh, Lazada, like Teeds, uh, Idenia, what they see in us is an easy way to develop a service offer that is regenerative, right? Um, so what they do is that they integrate handprint technological capabilities within their service offer to themselves be able to service regeneration to their clients. So for us, from our perspective, it's a pure channel sales setup, right? Where we don't have to put dollars in, the, in those collaborations. And what they see specifically is we cracked the way to digitize everything that is happening on the ground. So the data is actually available and can be integrated in user experiences, right? We can display in real time how much carbon has been absorbed by this plot of land. We can tell this user, you've been cleaning that much plastic from the ocean. It has supported that many species underwater. We have this data because we have an impact and data team that is working on on those models and these computations. And if you're a big company, you have two options. Either you partner with an NGO, a big NGO, which restricts the window of possibilities. You have then one partner instead of a network of partners that is available through handprint. And it's not really quantified in real time. And you don't really have digital tools to integrate that within your digital experiences. So that's what the big guys were after. On top of like, you know, they have access to a dashboard where they can track absolutely everything that's happening on the ground in terms of financials and verification. So for them, it's, um, it's a way to make sure that what they are purchasing is actually happening. Can you give me an example, and you don't have to use the name if you don't want to, but can you give me an example of an industry or, or a company where this is being used and how that then engages with the customers on, on the business's side? Absolutely. So I can give you a few examples that are live. We're working on uh, many use cases, handprint for banking, handprint for gaming, handprint for advertising is now live. 
with uh, our partner Teeds. So Teeds is the biggest advertising platform of the open web, right? So they, uh, most of the publishers use their technology to match a certain audience with a certain ad, right? A certain uh, announcer. Teeds has integrated handprint within their platform so that any announcer, so any company that is paying for marketing, for ad space, can redirect 5% of their marketing spend to a cause. And if they do, automatically on that ad will be displayed a messaging that says this ad plant trees or this ad cleans the oceans. And when visitors, when the audience clicks on that, they arrive on a handprint touchpoint that shows self-updating real-time metrics about that project, how many trees have been planted, what is the area that has been reforested, how much carbon has been absorbed, how much carbon will be absorbed in the next 20 years. You can see a map of where the project is at. You can send a message to the project managers. You can uh, see what SDGs this project uh, aligns with and why. Uh, you can see a financial transparency table. You can see the, the verification report of that, uh, of that project. So it's a way for brands to provide science-based and evidence-based touchpoints about the positive impact that they enable. So I'm curious when, when I notice industries develop, I realize that people start asking better questions. And so I think the question that I have for you is, have you noticed your clients becoming more sophisticated and businesses being more aware of specifically what they want versus maybe what it was even two or three years ago uh, when you guys were just first starting out? Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't say sophisticated, but definitely you can like, what we see is that there is a frequency, an increase in frequency in worlds related to net zero carbon neutrality, things like this, for example. And I wouldn't say sophisticated because most of the time they don't really understand these worlds. So I don't really see an increment in understanding of that space. It's an extremely complicated space. So that will be a, no, yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a very complex space. Most of the words that are out there that describe strategies like net zero, uh, science-based targets are very blur for a lot of people, especially professionals working in that space. And uh, it's, it's also a problem of not of governance, but also of like, who do you, as a company, who do you um, hire at those positions? We have lots of clients uh, for which our main point of contact is the, the head of sustainability or head of CSR. And some of them have a, a, a background in PR and marketing, right? And, not, and absolutely not in the science of the planet. So sometimes it's a lot of the, the, the learning curve is, uh, is quite steep. So I wouldn't say more sophisticated, 
It's just that people are more and more curious, especially within their teams, about these topics. Uh, that's why we provide uh, to, to our clients as well, like uh, talks and uh, workshops to raise awareness around regeneration, as opposed to the legacy sustainability that has been uh, the norm for the past 20 years uh, of like measure your footprint, reduce your footprint, offset your footprint, etc. Which is changing at a very... The, the world is actually moving towards a new paradigm that is called regeneration and that we are trying to uh, position ourselves into. Can you tell me something that has surprised you about regeneration that you've learned on your journey so far? Something that I find interesting is a lot of people don't, in that space, they don't ask themselves the right questions. So I give you an example. We have a client. It's one of the biggest payment platforms in the world. They, they wanted us to offset the carbon associated with a transaction. A transaction is super low carbon. Like it's, it's ridiculous, right? Uh, even a billion transaction is super low carbon. The effort and time that they have put in to hire a consulting group to compute exactly with high accuracy the carbon footprint associated with one transaction is insane. They spend maybe not millions, but hundreds of thousands of dollars for that. If they would have spent that in regenerating a plot of land that has been damaged, like whether it's like mangroves uh, or corals, their impact would have been positive. Just computing the footprint to then have a strategy that is based on compensating for that footprint, it doesn't really make sense. Right? And it's not, it doesn't make sense from a consumer perspective, from a planet perspective, and from the perspective of the growth of the company. Uh, so that's, that's still very surprising for me that because it seems logical, people are taking that path. While when you just sit down and analyze that problem, you realize that it doesn't make any sense. If you're not a company that moves mine or manufacture things, your main focus should not be on reducing your footprint because the, the leverage is too small. So the focus should be on reducing as much as you can and of course uh, switching to suppliers that are less carbon intensive, your energy supplier and all of that, but the rest, like uh, it's uh, anecdotal compared to what you can do in terms of regeneration. So that's something that keeps surprising me on a weekly basis, basically, when we dig into the, the sustainability strategy of our clients and, uh, and of prospects. But what we see as well is that companies that, that are applying regenerative principles to their sustainability strategy, those are the ones that are winning because it works for, for their consumers it works for their growth and it works for the planet. It's just more impactful. So there's been a lot of talk recently about mechanized carbon reduction systems. So I know that Bill Gates has backed one in terms of being able to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Now you were saying that mangroves are a hundred times more uh, effective than traditional land forests. 
Where do you stand on the idea of uh, like man-made carbon capture? I'm not against that. My, my perspective on that is that only in a world where we live in a carbon tunnel, where we only see through the prism or through the angle of carbon, these solutions can emerge. If you actually consider, just like COP20, like uh, the Kyoto Protocol considers that uh, countries have a carbon PL, it's defined politically through those agreements, so it's fine. It is defined. What is not defined is that companies as well have a carbon PL. It's not like it's not defined by science. There are emerging frameworks on that, but it's like there is no evidence that it's a viable solution on the long run. If you consider that carbon is fungible and that every company has a carbon PL, then it's a viable solution. You can build machines that absorb carbon from the atmosphere, but you're only looking at carbon as the single currency of sustainability. While it's not, you're not, you're not uh, including the problem of biodiversity loss in that equation. You're not including acidification of the ocean, even though it's uh, a correlation of, of carbon in, in, in the atmosphere. But there are lots of problems that are not related to carbon that you're just like avoiding because you're doing this dimension reduction of everything comes down to carbon. When you plant a forest, when you plant a, a mangrove forest, uh, not only you're absorbing carbon, but you're supporting biodiversity. You're providing livelihoods to local communities that extract ink, that extract die from, from the mangrove roots and that can sell it. You're yeah, supporting biodiversity underwater and uh, on land. You're protecting those coasts from effects of climate change, like uh, rising sea levels or cyclones, etc. So it's a, I feel like those solutions are really looking at the problem from a very, a very, very simplistic way. I'm not saying that those are bad solutions because ultimately we will need those solutions. So we need to invest now in those solutions, actually, uh, to, to have a way of uh, actually regulating the concentration of green, greenhouse gas uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, but today we have extremely efficient solutions that are nature-based and that we, can invest, that we can invest in. Sorry. So I've just got one last question uh, for you, Mateus, today, and that's what I ask everybody which is what is the advice you would give to somebody out there, maybe either starting their career or even a few years in their career and they want to make a difference is, you know, do you have a suggestion on some of the steps that they can take about either joining somebody or doing something whether they can? I would encourage anyone to contact us. Honestly, even competitors or even like uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, we are giving, uh, we have, we are publishing a lot of content about climate change, about uh, green tech entrepreneurship. Uh, so do not hesitate to check out our YouTube channel. That's, that, that's, a, that's a start. And then uh, if I have uh, one advice, that would be to, uh, to be curious, to read a lot about the space. Uh, more than that, I would say to read science. Because you can read a lot about like, I don't know, like uh, 
people that are interested in the space and that give their opinion about X and Y on Medium or on LinkedIn articles, uh, but that's their opinion, right? So read science, like go on Google Scholar and type the keywords that you're interested in, like regeneration. Read about regeneration instead of uh, reading about net zero on uh, Medium articles. That would be, <laughs> that would be my advice. Mateus, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you and, and thank you for inviting me uh, here to your, to your office in Bali. Amazing. Thank you for, for having me in your podcast.